I'd say, you know, there's, there's two things that I think we see out in the public that are no-nos or mistakes that people make all the time and that we can avoid. First one is just hiding what you are doing, right? Not being transparent or backpedaling later. And then the second is not taking accountability for mistakes. You're listening to CX Confessions, brought to you by Koros. I'm Spike Jones, General Manager of Koros Strategic Services. And I'm Stacey Satterwhite, Chief Customer Officer at Koros. In each episode, we'll share the customer experience stories and insights you need straight from the sharpest minds in CX, so you can better connect with your customers. And make them customers for life. Let's start the show. everybody. Welcome back to CX Confessions. New season. Who dis? New season. Season two, episode one. And I got a treat for you. I am joined by a brand new co-host. It's none other than our own chief customer officer here at Coros. Her name is Stacy Satterwhite. And I'm going to tell you right now, she's done some things and we're going to talk about them real quick. She comes to Coros with more than 30 years of tech experience. So she started working when she was five, which is awesome. I mean, I, there's child labor laws in Texas, but I don't think they apply here. But she's done a lot uh, in, in that time. She's worked in programming, consulting, sales, customer success. Did I miss anything, Stacey? There's a couple others, maybe uh, Healthcare First and Vignette, but probably not more that people really care about. It's a lot. Well, I'm old, Spike. Well, I don't know. That's all relative. Don't give me that. And you work for some small companies too, like Microsoft, Dell. I mean, these little startups that I don't even know if they made it, but uh, I mean, so some huge freaking companies, which is really cool. Some big, some small. Well, also IBM's in there. And that's, I think, where you worked before you came to us, right? Indeed. Right before Coros, IBM was home. Yeah. So you've been through two IPOs, one private equity exit. Super cool. Background in electrical engineering. Look at that. And now you're chief customer officer. That's a, that's a little bit of a career change. Uh, it kind of is, kind of isn't. I mean, engineering's all about problem solving and that's what I get to do all day, every day here too. Wow, that's super cool. And then also software programming, which comes in very handy for your role now. You're right down the road from me in Austin in Houston, Texas. You're there with your husband, your two adult daughters and your new granddaughter. Congratulations. Thank you. It's very exciting being grandma. And then there's something here about the Chicago Bulls and Phil Jackson. You went to school together. What, tell me about that. So Phil Jackson actually went to the same university I went to. And on one particular distinguished alumni brochure, I got to be on the page next to him. Unfortunately, <laughs> I don't think he knows exactly who I am, but hey, it's a thing. Uh, uh, he should be so lucky. Well, I am so excited that you are co-hosting. We're gonna have a lot of fun this season. We've already got some great folks lined up. Um, so, you know, why don't we get to it? Spike, I'm super excited to be joined today by Kirsten Newbold Knipp. She's an experienced technology marketer, sales, and product executive who blends leadership, communication, and even analytical skills, that's huh. key, I think, Yeah. to deliver and execute powerful go-to-market strategies. Her background includes 20 plus years in tech and SaaS, and she has lots of experience with companies like HubSpot, Intel, and Big Commerce, all brand names I'm sure you've never heard of, Spike. Who? Who? I don't need, no, I don't know. Exactly. And Kirsten's experience in doing those for those brands has a unique perspective of the total go-to-market 
uh, requirements from someone in her position. It's not just about marketing or maybe even smarketing. She has a broad range of, uh, of experience across technologies. She's currently the CMO at Full Story, where she's building a world-class marketing team that span customers from SMB to enterprise. Some of the things I'm looking forward to with Kirsten is you might have some thoughts on uh, category creation, its validity or not. And I think maybe she has a little bit of background in food, cooking, and travel. So we are so thrilled to have Kirsten join us today. So welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. Thanks so much, Spike and Stacey, for having me. Excited to be with you today. Absolutely. Always good to talk to a local uh, here in Austin. So we're going to jump right in, start hitting you the questions. We've got a lot of uh, things we want to talk about. Full story, doing some very cool things uh, with data and helping out customers in so many ways. We were all over your site and uh, saw some of the uh, testimonials of your customers. But for you, this is more about you, not about Coros. Let's talk about your passion for bringing great products to market. Where does that come from? Yeah, it's actually really funny. As, as I was thinking about this um, dialogue, I thought I might take you into the archives of my career, but very, oh, yeah. very briefly. And it's that before I was ever in technology, I was a hotel professional. So I went to undergrad thinking I wanted to be the general manager of a hotel. And I went to go do that. So for four years post-undergrad, I worked in hospitality, both at the Ritz-Carlton and at the Breakers in Palm Beach. And what that means is like, I'm a very service-minded individual. And a lot of times I would be working with, there was at one point I was in charge of our VIP program. So that means that customers like Steve Forbes or Harry Connick Jr. Or I even had the Judds. They were really fun. Um, but these are people who they were expecting something really outstanding from us. And they expected things to go seamlessly, right? They, they sort of had this like, you know when stuff goes wrong because you get complaints. When it goes really well, you might hear nothing. And I think that sort of experience that I had around being service-minded has really translated into how I think about customer experience today. Um, the, the translation into technology became one that I was actually the, the beta user for a software product in our hotel when I was at the Ritz. We were essentially rolling out a new sales system uh, and I was helping figure this out. And I met these people called product managers and I was like, oh, what you do is so interesting. And that is ultimately why I went to grad school and decided to go become first a product manager. Eventually I made my way into marketing, but the, the short answer there is I love this idea of creating software and experiences that actually make an impact on how people live, work, and play, right? In the hotel, I could make an impact on one customer at a time, maybe a handful. In software, in technology, I can make an impact on tens of thousands of people, hopefully for the positive. So um, that's a little bit around how I got to the place I am today. I love that the the because you hear stories about Ritz Carlton and and just the story after story story of the amazing customer service and how they how they you know have, know their customers so well especially repeat customers but that's fascinating to make that connection especially when it comes over to, to product that's really cool. I also think it's interesting to hear the connection between the service level that a hotelier like a Ritz Carlton would provide and taking that to a digital type experience. So maybe we'll more get into that here in a second. One of the questions I have for you next is at Full Story, you help companies make use of customer data to drive growth something I'm sure many of our listeners are interested in doing. What's your perspective for fostering the solid foundation of trust with those consumers during the process that allows you to then proceed with it? Yeah, this is both a very interesting and very timely question. Actually, it's funny. I was on a CMO 
panel yesterday, uh, more of a round table where we talked about things together. And it was about privacy and trust because the topic is so hot right now and really complicated. Um, so I think the, the way that we actually think about trust is, is first and foremost foundational to both our offering, but also our ethos. If you were to visit our blog today, you would find that we actually introduced trust as our fourth official watchword, or one of our values, about two months ago. But what was funny about it is it didn't come as a surprise to anybody. We didn't have to do a whole sort of change initiative. It was more that most of our team members, our employees said, thank goodness we finally codified the thing that we've thought all along. And our belief is that other brands should be doing that too, um, because it is incumbent upon us to not only hold sacred and protect, but be really transparent about what we do with customers' data, right? In a Ritz-Carlton one-to-one situation, I might have known that the Judds actually like to take their coffee this way in the morning, right? Um, But in a programmatic environment, it's less important that I know who exactly is doing something, but that I can help them achieve their goals in a more meaningful way. As we talked about this with a bunch of other CMOs a couple of days ago, um, someone said something that I loved, and I sort of have now framed it into a hierarchy in my mind that I thought we could talk about, um, because there is there is what you must do, right? There's the compliance piece of privacy, and we've all got, right, GDPR, CCPA, all the things, fine. That's what we must do. And I'd consider that's the bare minimum, but that's, that's just the starting point. It's not what consumers expect. There's what do you choose to do? I firmly believe that actually marketers today, product leaders today, have the opportunity to create a moat around themselves to choose to go beyond what is the baseline required. Certainly like Apple is doing this themselves today and making a lot of noise about it. But what could what could we do as marketers? Well, you go from compliance to then maybe the next level up in this hierarchy could be transparency. So I'm compliant by telling you that I'm using some sort of cookie. Uh, and for clarity, we are a first party only cookie. We do not share data across any other applications um, at full story, but all marketers use all sorts of other tools. So there's there's the compliance piece. What's, what do I have to tell you? Then there's a the transparency piece. What am I going to choose to tell you, right? Might I, might I go a little bit above and beyond to tell you something? And then maybe even might I give you a value exchange, right? I, as a consumer know that when a company uses my data, maybe it's to give me a better experience. Maybe I'm willing to give up that information. How can we actually have a dialogue around this as consumers? Can you offer me more options? Even if you don't have to say sort of right to be forgotten in the state of New York, you only have to do it in California. Why not offer it anyways, right? Why not make that something, if your infrastructure supports it, allow your consumer to engage with it, um, but make it really, really simple. And then finally, right, some, some folks are even going so far as to think about incentivization around trust, right? How might I get you to be willing to give me more data if I provide you loyalty or engagement or the like? But I think it, it comes down to bare minimum is compliance. From there, we have to build trust. And a lot of that is about the value exchange that we have with our consumers being as transparent as possible in that as we can. So what are you seeing with, with customers that you work with or with other brands as well? Oh, I actually want to ask Spike to answer that first, if you don't mind. Well, I mean, it's, it's, you see the word trust a lot and it's, and, and people's values a lot, their company values, but it's also a poster on a poster on a wall. And that's probably as far as it goes. So even just digging in, I recently was digging into some of the Salesforce uh, values because like for some of the sustainability stuff that they do and the uh, quality stuff, like there's some beautiful content there, but you click on trust and it takes you to their uptime uh, on their website. And that's it. Like, oh, our product has been up, you know, it's only gone down, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, oh, that's interesting, but you really don't talk about it. But to see and to hear you talk about the manifestation of it 
that's something that I don't see very much. People talk about trust. Sure, they talk about transparency even, but like really putting your money where your mouth is, that's rare um, from what I've seen in my career yeah. as well. I would, you know, it's interesting. I'll, I'll share that it's, it's and this is selfish. So uh, feel free to do with this content what you will. But um, <laughs> we actually think at Full Story within the context of DXI, Digital Experience Intelligence, we think that there is an opportunity to sort of lead with trust. So we're actually talking about it more than our own competition but we're also publishing training materials on it in a way that we think is really important because what is sensitive data? What's really, and while we can't mm -hmm. tell any one brand, we can't tell a customer, hey, this is exactly what you should and should not include as you capture insights and mm -hmm. data and sessions. But we can say, here's what's legally the minimum. Here's some yellow, what's so red, yellow, green. In the yellow zone, like these are sensitive things. You may want to choose to omit all of this and still get a ton of value. And this stuff's pretty green, right? But if you're in a healthcare situation, you may have to fine tune that, right? You might be more conservative or not, but by creating sort of helpful guidelines around that, I think we're hoping to stoke a conversation because to your point, Spike, many people are essentially leaning on their legal team and just saying, hey, what do I have to do? And I, I don't think that that will serve us in the long term. I think that's fine for okay, but it's not going to serve us in the long term as consumers expect more from us as they demand more transparency. And as we as marketers have the opportunity to build more of those one-to-one -one relationships, right? we're going to have less third-party data. How do we make sure that we get the most data from our customers because they trust us at taking care of that information for them? Actually, I want to ask a follow-up question. You guys are giving a lot of thought to the things you are doing and especially above and beyond the legal must-haves. I love that. Do you have any experience with, with the things you absolutely are, are not doing or the things you've done and had to stop that you mind uh, sharing with our listeners that might benefit from, hey, we tried this, didn't quite go over so well, like maybe an example of where the transparency was too much? Does that resonate at all? You know, I think as a concept, it resonates. And I think we are all, maybe for lack of a better word, we're probably more paranoid in that sense than we need to be. We have yet had to be had to roll back something with transparency yet. Um, now, I will tell you, we actually have had conversations internally about, hey, would we ever share this much information? And we've said, mm, maybe we would not, let's hold off. So, so we have gone conservative. We haven't yet hit that wall, which is good. So maybe it means we need to be pushing the envelope a little bit more. I'd say, you know, there's, there's two things that I think we see out in the public that are no-nos or mistakes that people make all the time and that we can avoid. First one is just hiding what you are doing, right? Not being transparent or backpedaling later. And then the second is not taking accountability for mistakes. I can, I can say I have definitely been at companies where we've made a mistake, where something has leaked, where something has happened, where some of our unsubscribes didn't work the way that we expected. This happened not too long ago at Full Story with one account, um, where some people were signed up for something that didn't actually make sense. And it was like, wow, thank you. We apologize. It won't happen again. And here are the process steps we're taking to make sure that it is um, never happens to anybody else, right? But it's sort of a one-time thing. And I think that that accountability is so important because it is the way that you build trust, right? It's not always going to go right. And um, identifying ways to fix it and be transparent about it when it doesn't, I think, builds that trust. Yeah, actually, Kirsten, since I'm the chief customer officer, very near and dear to my heart, the accountability when we don't do things right, because clearly we're all human, that stuff happens. I resonate a lot with me, that particular thought of we're not going to get it right always, all the time. 
And when we don't, we, we, we apologize and we put in the processes it takes to fix it. That's, that's what we can do. So appreciate that, Kirsten. So Kirsten, besides the Ritz, you've worked at, oh, I'm, I'm just saying some little startups like HubSpot, Intel, just tiny little, they're, they're going to make, I think they might make it. But uh, you've had some really great positions at some really great, huge tech companies. What are some of the key customer experience lessons you've learned in those roles? The, the biggest one for me is around, I would say, team interlock and then eventually data interlock. But team interlock comes before data and then data informs the improvements that you create in team interlock. And I think, Stacey, right, in your role as chief customer, right, you span multiple, but many companies aren't organized that way, right? Many companies, full story included, we have a sales organization, a marketing organization, a CX organization, a product organization. Call, we call our sales, marketing, and um, CX, we call ourselves the go-to-market council. And we actually added partner as we just recently added a, an SVP in our partner arena. And the four of us, are like a subset of our leadership team that sort of tries to stay in interlock. Are we perfect about it? Absolutely not. <laughs> are we having the conversations to say, hey, there was a really interesting one not too long ago. We talked about verticalization, for instance. I passionately believe verticalization is a great investment. I also believe it is more than a data sheet and a case study. <laughs> because what happens well, when you start to actively go after a vertical in a meaningful way, um, not only are you marketing more actively, but when they then come in, they might expect some different capabilities in your product. They might expect that you have partners in your ecosystem that are experts in their specific unique use cases. They might expect that their CX person actually knows something. You might verticalize the CX team. And if we're not having those conversations early, I think we're missing the boat. So as we were starting to have these conversations, it illuminated, oh, Okay, so if we want to be serious about verticalization in a certain way, we do need to think, right, what's a baby step? What's a medium step? What is full verticalization? And how might we evolve as an organization to really make sure the customer has the best experience? So team interlock, I would say, is the first. And then, and then data and systems interlock is the next. And um, we're fortunate, right? Born digital, we're natively digital. Um, many of our systems share data well, but not all. When I was at Gartner, I worked with a lot of blue chip companies that were 50, 60, 70, 80 years old. And man, the data messes that they had to try and, you know, combine these things and understand their customer. That was just really hard. It was spaghetti. So, um, yeah, I, I feel fortunate that we're in this uh, na natively digital world. Yeah, that's so true. I, uh, too, come from some enterprise organizations that had massive data silos and trying to get it to connect across all of them is a, a challenge that, that we certainly all have. Um, and then obviously at some point, you have to give up perfection in the data and go with it tells me what I need to know, because at least from my standpoint, that's one of the things we're working on at the moment is the data has to be believable and high integrity and directionally correct. But it honestly, will probably never be perfect. Unfortunately, I, you know, maybe maybe that's a miss coming in my leadership. But that's where we're at at the moment is 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 not perfection in it. Yeah, Stacey, I actually agree with you, and I think one of the things that um, teams can often do, and certainly I've been fortunate to be in kind of the high growth startup zone for a while. But you might get someone who wants to build the Taj Mahal when a perfectly good like mid level house will do. What do we need right now? Right, if we're doing our jobs right. The thing we built today will probably serve us for six, 12, maybe 18 months if we're really lucky, but we're probably going to need to break it and rebuild it. And that's okay because we're in a scale up right now. 
Um, so folks who are in that stage, that looks different than folks who are maybe already at scale, growing slower, and really have consistent systems that they just want to sort of roll on. Um, so yeah, 80-20 rule. I'm very much in agreement with you. And a totally different uh, experience from that stage versus an enterprise one. More fun, maybe, if you can you know, build it with a visibility to break it in 18 to 24 months. Okay, I'm going to change directions a little bit. You've coined the term smarketing in a previous position of yours. At least we believe you have. How do you see that sales and marketing partnership? You talked a little bit about GTM, your GTM group. So maybe it's expanded there a little bit. But how does that play into your ability to execute a successful buyer journey and customer experience? Yeah, great question. And I will say it's very generous to believe that I've coined it. I will give credit where credit is due. My colleague, Dan Tyre, who is just an amazing guy from my time at HubSpot, maybe one of the most energetic sales leaders I know. I think he may be actually the one who coined it, but at HubSpot, we certainly promoted it and I have, I've taken it with me everywhere throughout my career. Fortunately, actually two roles since post HubSpot, I led sales and marketing, which was just a wonderful journey into both learning things I had not done before, but building empathy for my peers on the marketing side. I mean, truly, actually, the, the role I have the most empathy for is the SDR or BDR role. That is the toughest job in almost any company. Right. Um, yes. Old calling. In every way. In fact, almost everyone should have that job once in their life so they can appreciate how hard it is. Yes. So you can appreciate the, the challenges and also, right, as it goes to the customer experience piece of this, and also what's it like to be on the other side of that phone call, that email, that LinkedIn, whatever the, the method of outreach is, making sure that it, it is something of value that you give. So the sales and marketing partnership is both so, so valuable, but it is also really crucial to be able to have, have the tough conversations and talk about where and how, where are their handoffs? Where are there breaks in the process? Where mm -hmm. are people doing the great mm -hmm. thing or the inappropriate thing? Calling those out. Um, I think uh, sometimes I am uh, I'm considered a very direct person. Sometimes that works in my favor and sometimes that can be a little much for people. Um, but, but I also am like, I have done this job. I know that you could spend a little more time personalizing. Not only would you get a better result, but the customer on the other end would feel better about this interaction. So, right, calling those things out as, as they are, but then also looking through both from a systems and a process standpoint, hey, what are we all doing, right? Are, are we hitting a customer 27 times? Nobody wants that. Are we trying to target right. by the right team with the right message? What does that feel like? How do we make sure that we're respecting the asks that they have of us? And again, providing them something of value. I think that the HubSpot era uh, experience that I have too around content marketing it is really suggestive to, um, if I want to share content with you, gosh, really it should be something that's relevant to your business. And there's enough information for me or a seller to do out there right now um, to tailor that very, very well, whether we're doing it manually or through systems and tools that allow us to sort of get the insights and do things at a little bit more programmatic fashion. I do think people are leaning very heavily into very programmatic personalization that I think can miss the mark sometimes. So finding that balance is, I think that's unique to every A little company. overdone, maybe. A little overdone, yeah. So speaking of being direct, uh, there is a question that we like to ask all our illustrious guests, and that is, what is a commonly held belief in your industry that you just don't agree with? Mm, yes. Probably the, the most popular one that I've talked about a lot with friends and, and CMOs and sometimes leaders, CEOs, board members, sort of this, this idea about category creation. I think it's right. It's very de rigueur. Everyone's read play bigger. Everyone's like, yeah, you gotta go be a category creator. And I'm like, and, and, and I don't disagree that some, some people have the right to go create categories because they really are. 
creating categories, right? Mm-hmm. And that others are disrupting existing categories or improving mm-hmm. and growing categories. And I think those mm-hmm. things are totally okay too. Um, so, True. right, like Uber truly did create a category around transportation in a way that no one had ever conceptualized. But when people say Slack mm-hmm. is a category creator, I'm like, no. There was chat messaging everywhere. It just wasn't mm-hmm. as good as Slack, and Slack approached it differently. They disrupted, right? So, so this this idea, I love to debate category creation because you come into almost any any conversation. Oh, oh, are you creating a category? Are you creating a? Oh, we're all we're creating a category, and um, I think at least eighty percent of them are not. Um, and they should look that in the eye and say, it's okay that I'm not creating a category. It is it is totally fine that I found this category. And I think the TAM should actually be double because we're going to innovate and make it better. Let's go do that. I mean, one of the things actually on my mind, maybe in that category, maybe not, but I think a little bit uh, about duopolies, right? So in an era, I don't know that there are in many categories monopolies, but moreover duopolies, meaning, so to your point about the TAM, can the TAM be served quite well and quite successfully by multiple organizations? You don't have to be the category creator. You might need a little different twist, but there isn't necessarily one winner or loser by category, at least that's kind of my my viewpoint. Yeah, I agree. I think there, there's not necessarily winner take all. There's usually two to three leaders. And then after that, we'll see. Correct. It's hard to be seven. Seven's not great. <laughs> but one, two, or three is pretty nice. Yeah, yeah, totally agree. Okay, I'm going to switch directions just maybe one last time before we get to uh, some fun rapid fire stuff here at the end. Do you have a particular type or kind of data about your customers that's most important to you? And again, with my chief customer officer hat on, I'd be super interested to see the things that you look at with your CMO hat, maybe the same or different than my CCO hat. Totally. Um, Goodness, there are so many. And some of them I have easy access to and others I have less easy access to. Um, But I would say, you know, first, when we think about the early stage before someone becomes a customer, engagement level data and an account level. Uh, we are, we are though we are a PLG heritage company, product-led growth company who serves the SMB, we have been rapidly moving up market. And for the last four years, we've been serving enterprises. So we have leaned a lot into more of an ABM style model and the ability to really understand for our top 100, top 200 accounts, gosh, are we engaging them? What does that look like? How are they progressing through a journey with us? Um, that is one set of information that's really, really important. But when I think then about the customer for us, we're actually in the process of building our own, what we might call an internal customer love score. And we can debate whether or not it really implies love or not, but it really comes down to a number of different sort of attributes of behavior that our customers engage with us around, right? It's how often and how many users are engaged in the platform itself and which areas they're using, how much data integration do they have, right? How much of a part of their ecosystem are we? Are we a siloed tool? Are we part of a suite that they actually rely on day to day? Um, What types of users and personas are engaged? Is it just just product managers or is it product management, UX, engineering, executives, marketing, right? Is it that whole swath of personas that's getting value from the solution that we have? There's this idea of customer health that spans many different things. And it even in- includes, right, not just integrations, but like ecosystem partners. We partner with folks like Qualtrics and we have a great way of integrating. We know our customers get more value when they leverage an integration between one of our joint you know, partners. And how, what percentage are doing that? Do we have customers who actually have Qualtrics but aren't integrated? 
goodness, that's a miss. How can we help that customer both get more value and then ultimately, hopefully love us more, become more sticky. So those are the, I would say the two big areas that we think about. Tons of micro uh, metrics within there that we could talk to, but uh, but those are those are probably the biggies right now. Love it. One final thought on that is, as you as I'm sure you're seeing and we're seeing in our world too, is just that continuation of a customer journey from pre-sale to post-sale. So that experiential component and the measurement of the engagement and satisfaction or health or love really in the end is kind of one continuous thing. It's not like a level before there's a sales uh, moment and then a level after. So interesting that it sounds like you're seeing some of the same things. For sure. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a continuous loop too, right? We, I think we all have opportunities and desires to say, Hey, we've engaged in this way. There's more value we could deliver. Can we, can we both give you more value, but extract more value at the same time and just keep the sales and servicing loop going and keep that relationship growing. And, and customer love score. I love that. So I, I hope it replaces uh, net promoter. So you heard it here first, folks. Uh, net customer <laughs> love coming to uh, a dashboard near you. So uh, Kirsten, this is CX Confessions. And uh, one of the things we do ask all of our uh, guests is to share with us a hard lesson that you have learned throughout your career or in your career. Doesn't have to be at a full story. It could be somewhere else, but just a lesson maybe you learned the hard way. I would say I've learned this the hard way at several companies. And so it's, it's a drumbeat that I use in a lot of, a lot of areas. Uh, and I think the lesson is that we are often very bad at articulating value to our customers and ensuring that we're always on the same page with them. So if we think about this continuum, Stacey, that we just talked about, right? Like there's the pre-sale, there's the sale, there's the service and there's it. And hopefully it becomes a virtuous loop. Also often in sales, there's an ROI calculator. Yeah, we got you. You're going to save a million bucks. You're going to make 10 million bucks. You're going to, whatever the thing is, um, 50 million bucks, who knows? Right? So we had an ROI calculator and then a handoff happens into a CX organization and the ROI calculator goes out the window, totally different set of people are engaged and you start working on some problems and then you fix the little thing you did to this and you did to that. And six months later, one person quit, something else happens. And, and lo and behold, we can't share, prove, discuss the value because we didn't really align on, hey, were the ROI metrics that we agreed on in the beginning, are these really the ones? Okay, let's agree to figure out how we're going to track them together. And then let's come back and judge ourselves. Did we do well? Did we do poorly? Even if we changed gears, that's okay. Let's just be articulate and agree on it so that when it comes time to decide if we have proven the value to you that we promised, that we're all on the same page. And you can go back to your leader and say, I, I need full story in my life, or I need convey, or I need big commerce, or I need whichever place that I was at. Um, I think that all of us tend to let that fall by the wayside. And we get very much into the nitty gritty of like, let's get the software up and running. Let's just make sure it works versus delivering value and really coming back to, to making sure that we're hitting on the most important problems our customers can solve. So hard lesson learned. It happens almost everywhere. Um, so it is something I harp on quite a bit. And one of the ways that I think about solving it is not necessarily to have an ROI calculator for everything, but to an extent, whatever calculations you're using on the sales side should number one, have stemmed from the reality of what CX problems we solve. And then it should be circular again. If you sold it, now let's start holding ourselves accountable to it. If it was wrong, it's okay, we can fix it, but we can find an additional way to add value. If, and then you start to fine tune that. But if you use those in QBRs and if you check in with your customer and you're making sure that you're delivering value, it makes it so much easier both for them to, to advocate for you, but for you to identify where and how it is or isn't working over the course of that customer journey. 
Kirsten, I don't know if you ever wanted a future as a CCO, but you have one. <laughs> that is all I say all day, every day. Nobody ever buys software because they want software. They buy it to achieve a value, value and outcomes, value and outcomes, value and outcomes. So, wow, near and dear to my heart, that answer, Kirsten. Thank you. But as we do come to the end of our podcast, we want to get to know Kirsten, the person. So we have uh, what we like to call quick fire confessions. So we are going to pepper you with some questions and just, uh, you know, let her rip. So I'll go first. One of my favorite questions we ask, what was your first concert? Erasure. When I was 13, it was amazing. Uh, Here it was in Dallas, which is where I grew (laughs) up and just so fun and so energetic. And by the way, I saw them in concert again three years ago. Same two guys and they are still rocking it. So I recommend everyone go see a razor. It's an fantastic, fantastic. That's a good one. That's a good one. That's a really good one. Cause I'm right there with you. Uh, I want to ask you any, any information about your age. We'll, we'll, we'll skip that. Uh, skip that. Okay. Here's next rapid fire question. What's your favorite ice cream flavor? Oh my gosh. I have a new one. So I just got back from our first real vacation in since the COVID years and we were in Italy and we had something that was called pistachio cubed or pistachio trio. And it was like pistachio cubed. So it was three different types of pistachio flavored goodness in one ice cream flavor. And I have now been spoiled forever. I need to find it in North America. I don't know if it exists here. For any Italians out there, if you know where I can find this gelato flavor, please, please, please let me know. Sounds like a good business opportunity. Um, if you couldn't do what you're doing now, if you and could do another, have another career profession, what would you do? I have an answer at the ready for this because I know what I want to do. I just don't know if someone will pay me to do it. But it's I would like to be a travel food writer or vlogger, whatever, mm. whatever you want. But I speak a number of languages. Travel is mm-hmm. my passion. And I love food. And Stacey, I said earlier, like as we were prepping, I love to cook. Cooking is kind of one of my contributions to the household. So I love experimenting with new recipes and food. Clearly, there are people who have this as a job. Um, I've just never quite gotten there. There's a theme here with the, uh, the <laughs> ice cream in Italy and gelato and cooking. Okay, got it. We're certainly getting to know you. I love it. Okay, maybe there's a connection here to an app. Um, what's the What's the app that you use the most that you can't live without? We're going to see if it's attached to the theme. Ironically, it is not. Uh, this is just nerdy. LinkedIn. I use LinkedIn so, so much. It's really silly, whether that's from um, actually recruiting and hiring people, uh, trying to build connections into business development, doing research, keeping up on marketing best practices and all the like. So um, I think outside of things like email and Slack, which we'll put by the wayside, um, I think LinkedIn is the one I use most. After that, you'll giggle. It's the step counter because I'm obsessed about getting thousand <laughs> steps a day. This year, it's 11,000 steps a day. So maybe the one way it is tied is that in order to enjoy all the food, Spike and Stacey, I have to take all the steps. (laughs) So that is actually an extension of the theme. I'll take it. it. That's a package right there. That's a package. We missed it, but uh, (laughs) we'll get there. That's a package. And finally, what was your first job? First job. This one's nerdy. Um, My first real paying job besides babysitting was working at the Eckerd Pharmacy in Dallas, Texas. Yes. uh, Which I don't think Eckerd exists anymore. They got bought by maybe CVS or Walgreens. I can't remember. But um, it was a cool job in that I was a pharmacy tech, which meant a lot of responsibility for a 16-year-old. They let me count out drugs, um, including uh, controlled substances, but supervised. Um, 
And then on weekends, uh, <laughs> no, it was interesting. I never took abuse of that. No, no, no funny shenanigans there. As a as a nerd and avid reader and someone who's like on a roll nerd type of person, what was great is on the weekends when the pharmacist was not there before the hours of pharmacies were really extended, they would let us basically man the pharmacy. But you might only have somebody come by once every 30 minutes and you couldn't leave because the drugs had to be supervised. So you did your homework. I got paid to do my homework. It was awesome. That's fantastic. That is fantastic. That sounds like a, a great life lesson right there. Yes. Two birds, one stone. Yeah. <laughs> Similar to your desire to get paid to travel and eat and write. So there we go. Yeah. Yeah. All, always, I am a, my, my husband calls me an optimizer. Uh, so yes. there you go. <laughs> and there you have it, ladies and gentlemen, Kirsten, the optimizer. Kirsten, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, some really valuable insights. I had took a lot of notes. Uh, there's a, a lot of stuff to think about that I'm going to share actually with my team too. And we know our listeners appreciated your insight. So again, thank you for spending some time with us today. Um, this is CX Confessions. I'm Spike Jones, along with our CCO, Stacey Satterwhite, and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks so much for having me. Man, that was a great conversation. She's a natural. She's good. But man, lots of great uh, nuggets in there. One was uh, that idea around team interlock as a foundation. Um, and I know because the customer journey spans multiple departments, Stacey, I'd love to hear your thoughts about some of the causes of breakdowns across teams. Yeah, actually what she said resonated with me again, with my chief customer officer hat on a lot, where we tend to see challenges in customer engagement and experience specifically is at the seams, is when a customer goes from one function to another, one group to another, it's the seams where we tend to actually have our customers experience maybe a less than ideal uh, situation. So I think her perspective on team interlock internally and in making sure everybody really understands what that holistic journey is like is so incredibly important to lessen that kind of bumpiness in seams. I loved it. I loved her team interlock uh, foundation. So one of the things Kirsten talked about that I found really fascinating is the concept of privacy and trust. Obviously, we all have legal boundaries that we need to hold ourselves accountable, accountable to. But one of the things I'm curious, Spike, your thoughts on is how do we hold ourselves accountable to going kind of above and beyond that? Where do you find the ability and drive within your organizations and the customers we work with to maybe do a little more than what's just legally required? First of all, I loved her part about how they're teaching their customers to be more transparent. I mean, that's thought leadership stuff right there. That's how you yep. establish yourself. Super, super cool. That's a different subject. But I think this reminds me of the early days of social when we used to have to convince brands to get on social because they're like, well, what if someone says something bad about us? We're going to give away, you know, our brand voice. And, you know, those conversations like, no, you have to put yourself out there and be part of that conversation, but it's going to be scary. So you got to loosen your grip on that control. And this is what this, this question reminds me of too. And, and so I think it starts with hard conversations. What are the little things that we can start doing to get people more comfortable, right? It doesn't have to be this huge sweeping reform inside your company when it comes to transparency or going above and beyond, but what are the little things that start to get us comfortable that we can, that lead to the bigger things? Now more than ever, your customers expect to be understood on a personal level. Their likes, their dislikes, their history with your brand and their communication preferences. But so many companies struggle to connect the dots of interaction across their own teams and channels 
which can lead to customer experience challenges and disasters. That's where Koros can help. The award-winning customer engagement platform was built to turn those siloed interactions with your customers into enterprise value. Koros works with more than 2,000 of the world's leading brands, powering more than 500 million digital interactions every single day. Learn more at Koros.com. Thanks for listening to CX Confessions, brought to you by Koros. If you enjoyed today's episode, make sure to hit subscribe in your favorite podcast app and give us a rating. See you next time.